Okay, our goal this evening is for me to share some personal experiences that I had with Rabbi Soloveitchik, known as the Rav. Last time I raised the question, why you should care about Rabbi Soloveitchik whatsoever? And specifically, why should you care about any of my experiences? My answer was that my experiences certainly are irrelevant and unimportant, but they will go somewhat of a distance in giving you some sense as to what this person is all about, and that will also go some distance in explaining why you should care about who Rabbi Salavechik is. Obviously, I'm aware that we of the certain community have no sense, no awareness of who Rabbi Salavechik was. I brought a poster and something that's worth looking at, and unfortunately I did order about 30, 40 of them. They didn't come, nor did the books that I want to show, show you and share with you. They didn't come either, so I'm still waiting for those, and we'll see what happens. Jewish organizations don't always do things on time. Why should you want to know about him? Certainly because he was the most extraordinary human being. I made the point last week that I called an absurd point that nevertheless was going to be defended that he was an ideal Jew, an ideal Jew that comes along every thousand years. That what he was an ideal Jew, I didn't defend, but that he was a kind of a Jew who comes along once every thousand years, I did in fact begin to defend. Am I exaggerating in saying that the last Jew that showed the same kind of understanding, that shared the same platform with Rabbi Salvechik was the Rambam, Maimonides? I don't think it's an exaggeration. I made the point, both were, of course, intensely traditional Jews, deeply committed to Jewish traditional practice. Both searched the contemporary culture in which they lived, for a way to express the philosophy of Judaism, whereas the Rambam expressed it in Neoplatonic Aristotelian terms, and Aristotelian expressed it in existential terms. Both were deeply compassionate human beings, and I gave examples from the Rambam and from, and from Isha Halakha as to what the Rav was really all about. This point is sometimes overlooked and not really emphasized. Both, I would say, were daring thinkers, as evidenced by the Rambam in Morena Bukhim 2.25 and certainly by much of what Rabbi taught and believed in. And Rabbi was a daring thinker as well by the story that I had told you and there's much to be said about the story true story heard from a first person witness to it the person who asked Rabbi Salavechik, I want to go study philosophy of religion at Columbia University, and yet I'm afraid to go and study. Rabbi Salavechik responded and said, I take a train, a, a plane every single week from Boston to New York. I'm afraid to take this plane. It may crash. But I take it anyway. One has to do what one has to do. Three or four years go by. This person comes back, and Rabbi Salavechik asks him, no, so what's doing? He tells him, the plane crashed, which is understandable. One goes to study religion at Columbia University, then the plane may in fact crash if you're not well-rooted enough in your own sources. That's a very daring statement to tell a young Smicha student. There are those who say that it was Professor Frederick Summers, who was a professor of philosophy at Brandeis when I was there, but I never confirmed the story with him. 
Certainly it's true as well, the Rambam had many admirers and many detractors. It's true as well as, as, well as Rabbi Salvation. He had many admirers and many detractors. Great personalities attract many students and much criticism as well. It's both a blessing and a curse to be this sort of person. That it's a blessing is obvious. Why would I say that it's a curse? Why is it a curse to have many students and many people who are drawn to your personality? What's wrong with that? Sounds like everybody should want to be blessed, quote-unquote, in that fashion. Good. Many of those who are students read into Rabbi Salvatric their own agenda, whether consciously or not. You will misread, misunderstand. I quoted Nietzsche's very famous statement that he asked to be protected from all of his friends. And with Nietzsche we know it was true to form that the Nazis adopted Nietzsche not understanding intentionally or not his entire philosophy. Obviously my point is that not everyone is a legitimate expositor of Rabbi Salvatric's philosophy. Not everyone is a legitimate student of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Today there is much written about the Rav. Much of it is what we call historical revisionism, wherein those people who choose to will revise what the Rav thought and believed, either consciously or unconsciously. I would raise the question whether or not the Rav would recognize himself in some of the portrayals of himself. I would be so bold to say that not so. Many of those who speak in his name certainly had no sense as to his philosophical interests, had no awareness or understanding of his parshanut, and yet are of course deeply committed to him as the Rav. And vice versa as well. Many of those who only understand Noah's philosophy, and who only understand his parshanut, let's say, have no sensitivity, no awareness or understanding of his Talmudic genius. That's true across the board. Are these two things bad, or are they it's very bad. nothing? Or are they better than nothing, or are they not better? It's than not better than nothing. It's terrible. Because they portray him not as he was. They quote things in his name, which he said, or said privately, or said with a, with a caveat, or said and qualified it, and it's not who he really is. One, I gave some examples last week. Whether or not a woman can carry Sefer Torah. Carry Sefer Torah to the woman's section, and... <coughs> let her carry or let her kiss it or whatever the case may be. So again, Rabbi Riskin, Rabbi Lipstein, Rabbi Berman all swear to say that he said yes to that. Rabbi Meiselman and his grandson, Rabbi Tversky, says absolutely never said that. It cannot be both. Either it is or it's not. And we're going to shape what my orthodoxy is. Not the certain community at this point. 20 years from now, the certain community will catch up to what modern orthodoxy is all about. 20, 30, 40, 50 years maybe. But it will catch up. And then we're going to look for some kind of guidance about this issue. And we're going to raise the question. Did Rabbi Sologic say this or didn't say this? Right? I don't believe that Rabbi Riskin is lying or Saul Berman is lying or Rabbi Lipstein is lying. They heard it as yes. Yes? Analogously to a story that he told mm-hmm. about what he told the Smicha students right. mm-hmm. the plane the plane might crash it's here again the same thing so he wouldn't have he wouldn't have shied away had he known this possibility he would have still given his answer whatever way he gave it mm-hmm. and let the chips fall where they may yeah and I think that's we true. have to keep take that into to account when we look at the historical record and say this is the way these things go. Absolutely. And, and so the question would be... It's not, it's not a curse. Uh, it's a curse. It's, just, 
It's a curse in that people are going to represent. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, we have no choice. The Ram had to be the Rambam and represent to be Rabbi Zubedic, irrespective of those who are going to do this. Right? You're absolutely right. Sorry? Why have said both at different times? Possibly. Or nuances, context, all that. Set, definitely without question of possibility. Was secular studies for Rabbi Zubedic a post facto need, or did he recognize it as an independent area of study? So again, there'll be those, Rabbi Willig and others, have said, nah, he didn't really take it that seriously, something did it in the bathroom, didn't really care about philosophy, etc. Which I think is nonsensical. I think anybody that knew him and studied with him would know and recognize and state unequivocally that for Rabbi Soloveitchik, philosophy, secular pursuits, physics, mathematics, all that he studied was something that you did a priori to understand God's world. So there's no question about that in my own mind. And yet, there are Rosh Hashivot and others who will say that was only a pastime. No doubt, one can say that he was, of course, without question, profoundly committed to the study of Torah. Intensely. Deeply. No question about that. On the other hand, when he studied philosophy, he studied philosophy properly. Intensely committed to the study of philosophy. Whether or not he may not view that as a secular. He may not view, view that as well as a religious pursuit. That I don't know. But certainly nobody would say that that would be something to be viewed as a post facto. You have to study? Okay, study. No, he would tell you to go ahead and do it. Interestingly, that is, children had gone to Harvard and go to YU. Kind of so they went to Harvard and go to YU. Because you have to get the best education that you can get. Not for a Padmasau reason, not because you had to make a living. You have to study with the great minds of the ages, is what he would say. So Harvard was greater than YU in that period of time. Today... <laughs> Maybe not. Can women study Torah? Can women study Gemara? Right? That's an ancient question. To this very day, we have an issue in our yeshivot. Right? Can women study Gemara? So Rabbi Salvador said, obviously, yes. He gave the first shi'ur to the women at Stern in Gemara itself. So those who say, well, he was, he was forced to do so, could not do so, had no choice to do so, I say it's absurd. Is that why? Do women have to cover their hair? Rabbi Salvador said, wife and daughter Atara and daughter Tovlissenstein, which was at YU, did not cover their hair. So we say, well, his wife was so powerful that she didn't refuse. I, I say that's, I, 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 that's an absurd statement. Because he did believe in halakha, and he, he would explain that. What do you mean she refused? Where was the root? Where was the source for her refusal? Who? The wife. Why would she refuse? <coughs> She's coming into the marriage and is that from a vacuum? She never heard of covering him with your face? Oh, she heard of it. She knows the halakha. Yeah, so he... Well, obviously, he didn't think he, he came down and said something that... The it's not the halakha. It wasn't the right. for him. Right, which is not surprising. But is that why he didn't want to have everything written down because of what happened with, um, with Rabbi um, Berman and all of them? They say he said something else. And, like, he didn't want to have everything written down because people sometimes miss... miss Construe it. Well, uh, he was right, right, correct. So didn't he have a thing that he just didn't want? He didn't no, I don't think it's exactly accurate. I think you're conflating a number of different issues. He didn't write a lot. People will tell you that. Outside of three or four essays, five essays, he didn't write all that much. Although I would say that his essays are substantial. Allah man, holy man of faith, Allah's mind, his five essays in tradition. That is a lot. If you look at what's the great productivity of any great scholar, a superstar in the field, right? It's two books and 20, 30 articles. You look at what the Rabbi Tversky wrote, Marvin Fox wrote. These people who are great scholars in the field, Eliza Berkowitz, five books, six books, whatever it may be. Nineteen. Nineteen, but some of them are essays. 
besides books, some of them are just essays that he compiled, put in after the fact. So it's not really 19 books. You can't write 19 books if you're serious about your scholarship. Uh, it's interesting in this context, one of the great scholars, a guy named Moshe Zucker. Moshe Zucker wrote all that Sajika, only wrote two or three books, and it's fine. News wrote about two or three hundred books. More than two or three hundred books. When I last counted. Nuzna, Jacob Nuzna. Now, uh, it's hundreds of books, across the field. So, Nuzna once explained it, or Zucker explained it. Zucker once said, <coughs> Zucker once said, I'm trying to remember the exact quote. I don't remember the exact quote. It came out, it came out in the fashion that Nuzna is willing to write with 80% accuracy. accuracy which is a curse, a crime, it's an obscene act in a world of scholarship. If you have a footnote that's wrong, your whole thesis should be torn up. Every footnote, take note. Every footnote, every point you make has to be backed up. Scholarship is knowing more and more about less and less. So you know everything about nothing is the way that we formulated it when I was in graduate school. You know more and more about less and less. If you know everything about that particular period of time, one does not fool with the truth. Truth is an absolute. So if you're a good scholar, you're writing two books, three books. You look at Rotorsky's books on the Rambam, the Rivet, it's all he wrote, and, a, and a, two, three dozen articles. He edited three or four books as well. Those are just other people's articles. Okay, and he wrote a few articles. So I wouldn't say that Rabbi Sojik didn't write all that much. In the world of scholarship, it's relatively the same as other great scholars. Number one. Number two, I would say that I think he was so sophisticated of a thinker that he was aware that changing situations and changing circumstances demand changing responses. So if in the 60s it was appropriate for women to have a Torah, it doesn't mean necessarily that in the 70s it would be also. It's not a halachic issue. Halacha does have certain absolute norms, no doubt. But also, there's a realm between the lines of halacha where it's less than absolute and it's relative to time and place. So that relativity has to be maintained. Is that relativity part of halacha? Yeah, exactly. So that's so exactly. It really is. So for for the Rav, for example, that that's part that's built into the structure of halacha that 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 degree of flexibility. Right. It is within. So, and he's aware that when you write something down, it takes on a kind of a kind of absoluteness. So he didn't want to be said that I said that you could never do X, Y, and Z. And as we go along, I'm going to share with you some stories where that will come out. So give me two minutes for that. Um, but a Talmud of Higgs uh, said, wait a minute, you said something uh, contradictory two years ago. Correct. So uh, Rabbi Salvation was quoted that saying, don't, uh, don't worry about what I said two years ago. Exactly. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and it's true that every time he formulated his shi'ur, it wasn't what he did two, two years ago, three years ago, he learned it anew. He studied the same sugya again, and he may have come to the same or different insights, different understandings. And he may have torn up two years ago shiur. There's a dynamism, a boldness, dynamism. and excitement about what he did and what he learned. So therefore, he didn't do what he did two years ago. And, he, and it's true. Lonnie Manifest may contradict his shiur that he gave us during college about Eve. 
But it's the same issue. It doesn't matter. He opens a text, he studies it, whatever his insights, whatever his ideas, whatever his thoughts are all about. That's why you don't write. That's one reason why you don't write. It's a never unending fountain of creativity, of thought, of <coughs> explaining new ideas, new thoughts, new nuances. So I can write it down. Which is why he could have said both yeah. things regarding. Yeah. In certain cases, it could have been yes. He might have, yeah, absolutely so. No doubt. I don't think Rabbi Meir Tversky is long as my grandfather never said it. I, don't think, I think that you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Furthermore, Rabbi Salich, and this comes back to your point, is known as somebody who demanded clarity of thought, precision, precision in explication. Every word had to be weighed. Every word had to be so precisely defined. There was no room for error. So therefore, he read everything that he wrote 10 and 15 and 20 times, if not much more. We don't write that way. So he wrote that way, therefore he wrote less than he should have, could have written. Why can't we think of uh, Rabbi Shalabachik like the uh, rabbi who was approached by a poor woman on a late uh, Arab Shabbos with a chicken, whether it's kosher or not, and the rabbi would say, because she's a poor woman and it's late, uh, he would say it's kosher. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't agree, because I, so that you also had a very, of course, profound commitment to the truth of halakha. <coughs> so that might be a variable in the halakhic formulation. If there's a safek, maybe he might, that might bend him towards saying it's kosher. But certainly if it weren't kosher, then he wouldn't say that it's kosher. That goes without uh, saying. And there's a doubt of whether it's kosher. Perhaps. Uh, perhaps. That's a halakha issue. Halakha categories are objective. As well, so. Isn't there a story like that without Rav Khan? In the Isha Lacha, correct. He is that right? The lady comes in and asks him, "How's your life?" He says, "says What's in your What's in your refrigerator? Right. What's in your icebox?" Hmm. Says, "I have nothing in the icebox." He says, "It's kosher." Right. So, what has to know if that's law or lore? No, no. Meaning. I know what the meaning. Is. I, under- I understood the story to mean that there was obviously sides to be permitting the chicken and those sides to be right exactly my point correct therefore under the circumstances of this lady's need you don't make her a mahmir you have to agree that's exactly my point correct 100% yes so let me go on yes I'm sorry I'm just very uncomfortable with something (laughs) a man this great a man with this kind of knowledge a man who transmitted so much Torah and knowledge okay I can't accept that the way you, you, you explained it, that he didn't put things down because they, they're going to change. Then I'm sure, and I, I obviously never met him, I'm sure that anytime you would ask him a question, he would very easily qualify and say, this is halakha, and in this circumstance, or in this environment, or in this whatever, more complex. This, is how it's going to work. this is the application. No. Maybe 20 years from now, it might have a different application, but the halakha is going to stay the same. No, this is, and no. he's not going to change his mind about the halakha. Yes, 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 yes. You do change your mind, number one. Number two, you may change your mind, you study the sources. Not everything is ham and eggs. Ham never be, will never become kosher. Okay, we agree. But not everything is ham and eggs. A woman covering her hair is not necessarily perhaps ham and eggs. Okay, so what's... So, so wouldn't... Oh, isn't the norm of Godolim to say, all right, if they're, gonna, if they're going to document it, a woman came and the question was this, 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 with this circumstance, and all the qualifications, and based on this, the ruling for this situation at this time and place is this. Now, but one comes with the same question in another part. Correct, so if you put it down, you can't put down all the variables, all the factors, all the reasons. 
the oral law was meant to be oral. So why do we have... That's a, definition. That's a definition. The oral law was meant to be oral, not to be written down. I refer you to Rechaim Soloveitchik's article, famous now, Tradition 94, I think it was, where things have changed. Where now law is embedded in stone, which freezes it, which makes it absolute, when really it should be more relative. Because you can't capture all the nuances and all the situations and how poor is poor with Victor's chicken. How, how these items have to be, oh, you have black bread that's dry and almost rotten? No, you're chicken is tied up. Now you can eat your black bread. Your black bread. It's not that simple. But the also, can't solve the problem? Yes, in that he's now willing to deal with questions that you have in this context. And he would not want you to quote the answer that you have. But you received problem with the Torah you having two different people that are two different of people that are saying they receive different. Okay, right. So th- that's inappropriate. <laughs> maybe maybe it's inappropriate. Maybe it should not have been that way. In those two contexts, Rabbi Ruskin heard the Pesach Halacha, he implemented it in the synagogue, so now it became public knowledge. So that is what happens. That's true. You're right. This is what happens. But I don't think, I think if he were to write something down regarding it, it takes on a different life. He, he, would, he would want a person to defend it. You defend it, I, we discuss it, you defend it. The ball's in your court now. And I, I presume he didn't say, don't say, my Rebbe said, don't say this. He didn't say that. Okay, so it may have been a line that he wasn't willing to cross. It might be his personality issues not to try to clearly decide these certain issues many times he would say don't ask me that question I'm a mahmir he was a mahmir about nida mahmir about avilut known when we ask people ask him I'm in 12 months of mourning can I go to a seminar no you can't go can I miss shi'ur to go to protest for Soviet Jewry no you can't go so certain things he was mahmir about certain things he was nakil about so I don't think he would want to he didn't want to write a igrot Moshe. It wasn't his personality. It wasn't his type. For various reasons. Let's go on and we'll try to well, come back to the point. different from Rambam in that sense? Yeah, very different. And that the Rambam wrote everything down. Was willing to now put everything down and as absolute. Maybe in the thousand years since, the Rambam, maybe he was saying that we now know that we should be putting things down. But you also made, Perhaps. A, point, but you made a point about that last week. Rambam's ability to reach Rambam was more limited. Right. Correct. To the rocks. Yeah. What we want to do really is try to capture what he's really all about. And not really fully sure. explain. So we're going to try to now. Okay, good. So there is something to be said for many of those who have expressed public opinions in the name of Rosalovetic and yet, on the other hand, really were guilty of historical revisionism. Many have attempted to capture the essence of Rabbi Soloveitchik, and many have failed. So, of course, what you're thinking about is whether or not I am a legitimate student of Rabbi Soloveitchik, right? That's an important question. So I'm certainly not going to be so arrogant as to say that I, quote-unquote, knew the Rav. Obviously, there are those who certainly knew the Rav's Torah, quote-unquote, much better than I know it. On the other hand, I'm not going to be so humble as to say I knew nothing of the Rav either. I did study with him for a great deal of time, but certainly read his works, and have some insight, some sense of who the Rav was, and have some feeling about it. Certainly, I know his philosophy. Certainly, I sat through many of his shorim. 
his parshanut I appreciate because that is particularly my field and I would say that I know that less so than his Talmudic insights so am I a student of the Rav? certainly from my point of view yes from his point of view questionable I don't know what he would say about that particular issue some of the stories that we're going to talk about may give you some insight as to answer, in answering that question Am I a student? I wouldn't be so bold. Have you, uh, maybe you would get into the last one, have you uh, mentioned any of the books that you think have more accurate portrayals uh, of what Rav had said or didn't say? Yeah, I would say that I, I asked the Soloveitchik family who is the best interpreter, who understood the Rav the best? Right? I asked that to Rabbi Soloveitchik's grandson-in-law. Rabbi Rosenblatt. And he said, Rabbi Wurzberger, the family all agrees that Rabbi Wurzberger was the one who was a kindred spirit to Rabbi Soloveitchik. That's point number one. Point number two, I think, in answer to your question, that every book portrays the Rav as he was, where he was at when he wrote that particular book. He's deeply committed to all that he wrote. All in men of faith, halakh men, halakh mine, every article. I'm talking about the secondary books, Nefesh and, and oh. some, of, some of these other books that attempt to portray the Rav. Do you have an opinion as to which one is most guilty of revisionism, least guilty of revisionism? Most Muslim for sure. I, I trust nothing that he says or writes. Period. That's for sure. Uh, Rav Schachter, whom I love, as, as it was my Rebbe for two years, I think and I, a story that I told last week, I, two weeks ago, I think I told the story. I was Rosh Hashanah for two years. First year, I was learning Gemara and everything else. It was great, wonderful. But I always had this inclination going back then that I wanted to do something in, in philosophy. So Rosh Hashanah told me, okay, so read Mishra Yishadim. I said, okay, good. So I read the whole book a few times. Fine. Next year, I read Rosh Hashanah again. So Rebbe, I'd like to read something in philosophy. He says, Rosh Hashanah, that last year. He says, read it again. You only read it once. So, so then I actually think at that point. And then I said, but you, the Rub wouldn't have said that. So he said to me, quote, ah, he had his own Mishigas about philosophy as well. He had his own Mishigas as well. <laughs> Mishigas means, I can't translate that. You know what it means, Mishigas? Right, so Rav Shechter, I would say, was great in many ways in terms of that, but in terms of understanding his philosophy, wouldn't get it. His philosophy, very worshipful for God. Very worshipful get his parshanut. I think what has not been done yet is a appreciation and understanding of the Rav's parshanut. Yes, most people, it's, it's drushas, it's dirash. No, it's pshat. His understanding of this text, Bereshit, Aleph and Bet, is a shutoshel mikra. What he thought about when he wrote this essay. That was pshutoshel mikra. He wasn't writing drushas, quote unquote, he's writing pshutoshel mikra. Uh, Marvin Fox has a wonderful essay uh, in tradition on Rabbi Soloveitchik II. Because Dr. Fox is a, a philosopher, is a committed Jew, he's a halachist in some measure. He has two essays which are masterful, masterful essays. One is the Rub as a Maspid, <coughs> the Rub as a eulogist. When the Rub gave a eulogy, it was an extraordinary event. And one should understand what does it mean to do and give a eulogy, point number one. And his other essay on Rabbi Soloveitchik, defending Rabbi Soloveitchik from an article that a professor at Turo wrote, 
Smosh Sokol, I think his name was. Not Sokolov, somebody else. This is Sokol. S-O-K-O-L. He wrote an essay, and, and Marvin Fox was obviously right, Sokol was obviously wrong. It's a, those are two very good essays portraying who Rabbi is in these two limited areas. Oshakta in one area, the answer is that nobody can capture the Rav. He was a philosopher, he was an exegete, he was a halachist, he was a talmudist, he was all of those. No one person can actually capture what he really was all about. I believe that I could capture his exegesis because that's my field, so I understand where he's coming from. His issues, Umayyus was an exegesis in Pashanut. In philosophy, something different. Robert Wurzburg understood his existential philosophy because he's coming from the same place. Here, it's not only knowledge, it's knowledge as lived personality. On the other hand, who understood the Rav's conceptualizations of Talmudic analysis? I'll get to that in a minute. It's not me, that's for sure. It's Rav Shachter from a certain point of view. But not from every point of view. Because Rav Shachter, when he learned Talmud, always did it with Acharonim, with the latter-day rabbis. Rav never used, or rarely, if, if ever, used later-day rabbis. One story, and I'll get back to my own stories. This is not part of my stories. We were studying, I believe we were studying Bava uh, Messiah at the time, and there was, uh, Rav formulated the Talmudic text in a certain kind of a fashion, and he said, Rav Serkin said, who was a bit Talmudic himself, Okay, good, thank you. <laughs> and Rav says, the Rav cannot say this, because the Marsha said something different, and he's an Akram. Well, Selecha says, I don't care, bang the table, I'm also an Akram. Mm-hmm. Now, no self-respecting Gadova says, I'm an Akram. You proclaim that by others, and you don't proclaim yourself to be an Akron. I was there. I heard it. I hit the floor, and everybody else hit the floor. You just don't say things like that, I'm an Akram. It's like saying, you know, I, I'm, I made it. But he was very much aware of his own brilliance. It was an unpretentious kind of brilliance. Einstein was also brilliant, but Einstein wore his brilliance very heavily on his sleeve. Rav never did. His brilliance was in taking the complex and making it simple. Einstein was the reverse, taking the simple and making it complex, I guess you might say. That's a, that's a tongue-in-cheek a bit, not exactly accurate. So, in that context, who really could capture the rub? Robert Wurzburg has captured part of it, others captured other parts of it. There was, there is, will not be, and was not a person like the Rav in the last thousand years. Unless you can come up with somebody else and fill in that gap. The Rambam, again, was somebody who deeply committed to halakha, tradition, piety, etc., as well as deeply compassionate, as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, as well as concerned with the philosophy of halakha, Moreen Abuchim, read the last three chapters of it, what is the halakha really all about, halakha, the man of halakha, all of that, they shared the same universes. I can't think of anybody else that shared the same universes, nor Rabbi Lefenstein, nor even Rabbi Tversky. Each of his own point of view. Rabbi Tversky is not a philosopher. He's not a historian. It's a different angle. Neither are Pashanim. Neither one are people that explain text the way Rabbi Soledad explain texts. I'm not sure in terms of um, another area how great a reader, Rabbi Soledad is a great reader of text. He read a text that he saw what nobody else ever saw before in that text. Right? You read Lonely Man of Faith, because you know, we read it a thousand times. When he saw it, nobody else ever saw it. Right? That's obvious. Rabbi Tversky is a great reader of text, and so is Rabbi Lichtenstein. But as there's Rabbi Soledad, I would say no to that. So the answer to your point is that there's really nobody that has captured him. 
I don't want somebody that captures him. Even a book. A to Z. I want to say, is Nefesh for example, in your estimation, if somebody were to read it, by and large, yes, and no. accurate in yes. its portrayal of the Rob's positions and behaviors on certain points. Yes. Yes and no. Another story. <laughs> Nothing though, no, which is not never shot out. Rabbi Soloveitchik was known to wearing a, you might have remembered this, a green plaid sports jacket. He wore it to Shi'ur, as well as he wore it, I saw him wearing it to Shi'ur. He also wore it, they say, to the Agudat conventions, where they wore long black clothes. So the question is, why did he wear it? I want to ask somebody, why did he wear that the long black, I wear sports jackets as well. Not because he did it, for other reasons. But he wore it as well. Now I go to rabbinic meetings, everybody's wearing their black suits and their gray suits and their darkers. I wear my sports jackets. Appropriate, I think. Whatever it may be. But, because he wants to show them it's not, the clothes don't make the man. You wear all the black clothes you want, all the black clothes you want, whatever you used to wear, and I go back to whatever you used to wear. That does not make the man. So people said that was a statement of his, Kineged Harok, against those who, who did it. So yes, the answer is, I think Nebuchadnezzar Harab does portray the Rav as he was, in many, many ways. I remember once when uh, somebody was doing a, um, a Sheva Berachot, and Rabbi Lana was involved, and at that point, he changed the Nosach of the Berachah. Because the Rav had his own Nosach of a Berachah, what to say, under the Chupah. Most would say, say this way, say that way. No, to him, the Nosach, the proper Nosach had to be 100% perfect. And he had his own Nosach of the Berachah of how to get married. So, Rav Shachter did capture all of that. And, and, but on the other hand, if you heard Rav Shachter's series of tapes on Torah Shabbat Peh, it's nine tapes, it's a great series, but it's not Rabbi Salvation, I would say. If you read Rav Shachter's article, let's say, on, I think it's on birth control, in the Journal of Halakha Society, it's Rav Shachter. But it's not Rav Salavechik. He's not saying that it is. But, so it's, even with Nebuchadnezzar Harab, a lot of it is, but some of it is Rav Shech, is what one would say. It's a very important article, good article, by Larry Kaplan, who translated Ish who had access to the Rav, and he's a professor of philosophy at, at McGill. And um, this article, I don't remember where it but it's a wonderful article, on revisionism and Rav Salavechik. And he's very good. He does quote Nebuchadnezzar, where he finds it in certain areas revisionistic. So that's a, that would be some sense of what we're talking about. Okay, let's go on. Now, the official biography of the Rav is told well enough on the CD of this little booklet that I was going to bring in and sell to you, but I didn't get them, so I can't sell them to you. I would tell you to contact me in another week or so when I do get these in, and if I were you, I would buy it. The booklets are wonderful because it shares something about Robert Salavechik, and the CD is J.J. Shachter, Rabbi Shachter, who's in Boston at this point, who gives a good official biography of who the Rav is, and it's portrayed outside on the murals there. Although I don't find the official biography wonderfully exciting, but it's good to give some insight as to who Rabbi Salvechik was. My personal reflections and narratives present a very subjective, idiosyncratic view of who the Rav was. But it's valid to a certain degree. It presents certain facets which are as true from a certain point of view as the official biography. Perhaps in some cases my personal reflections and stories about the Rav are even more true. Why? 
Because sometimes a story, a personal story, can capture the essence, the vision, the nuances of a personality, what escapes the official biographer. Official biographer is interested when he was born, where, who he married, what he did in this country, what he taught, what his books are all about, but it misses the, the heart, the soul, the essence, the vision. To capture the vision of a person, one cannot do so in those historical facts, but rather it's seeing and interacting with a personality is what can really capture the essence of the person. So to some degree, from some point of view, these stories capture something that the official biographies do not. But I also want you to remember that all of these narratives are idiosyncratic and therefore also are of a limited nature. Right? I would also want to note, before I begin, that not all the stories are of equal value, nor will the message necessarily be all that clear, and if it's not clear to you, then please ask and we'll try to explain a little bit more why I chose these stories and not others. Around September 1968, I began to attend Yeshiva University. On campus, of course, you heard, I heard much of, quote-unquote, the Rav. At that point in time, though I went to Shiva Flappish, I didn't know who the Rav was or anything about him. The Rav said this, the Rav said that, and I remember thinking at that time that it was somewhat peculiar and odd and strange that someone was known as the Rav. The Mick, I heard of. The Rav, I didn't hear of. Right? Who's the Rav? Sorry? The Mick. You, you got that? You're old enough? Good. Good. None of us got that, but okay. Sorry? Yeah, you got it. Smart. Okay. The Rav I never heard of. But I accepted it. Okay, the Rav is the Rav, and fine. I was overwhelmed by it. I thought it was strange, but Ashkenazim called the, their representative the Rav, but okay, fine. In March of 69, he gave what's known as a Yorkshire Shi'ud in the main auditorium at Yishu University, which attended by about 2,000 people. And the topic was, as I remember it, holiness and kingship. Kedushah and Malchut. Holiness and kingship. I was wondering at that point in time... Should I go, not go? I had a lot of work to do. It always seems to me that I always have a lot of work to do. That hasn't changed in the last 30 or 40 years. Always, so, no, don't go, go. Uh, okay, I'll go. So I went. I remember where I sat, second tier, two rows in, middle of the auditorium. I was overwhelmed at that point by the power of the ideas and the formulation. Even though I'm sure I didn't understand 40% of it, of what he said, at that point in time, for the three hours that we sat, I was, and the only way I could explain it, was walking out, was intellectually inebriated. What does that mean? Inebriated? Drunk. Drunk. With the ideas that he expressed. I was in English. Yeah. Yeah, my Yiddish wasn't good, that good at that point. So now, but not then. The ideas were bold, creative, powerful. I never heard of anything like it before, and that's without understanding it at all. And I resolved that point, I want to be like him. Strange to say, I was a kid, 18 years old, I want to be like him. You switched from the myth to the rock. Yes, correct. Yeah, I wasn't like either of them, actually. So. One was close than the other. In effect, at that point... No, I don't think so. I didn't hear as well then. In effect, at that point in time, I felt that he captured, from my point of view, my heart and soul. Four years passed uneventfully. I was sort of shocked for years in learning. And other Rabbanim, 
the fifth year, my first year of Semicha, I was very surprised by the invitation to join the Rav Shi'ur. Not all first year Semicha students were that lucky to get to the Rav Shi'ur. It goes without saying that I was petrified, had a reputation of being very demanding, and it also goes without saying that I was definitely not up to the task. It was not for me. I should not have been there. My heart was beating. I was told, some of you know Rabbi Khan, Torah. Yeah. Aaron Khan is a very close friend of mine, a wonderful person. He was giving the Rav's Hazara Shi'ur. If the Rav gave Shi'ur for three days a week, he gave on Mondays a Hazara. Right? He gave, to explain what was going on in the Shi'ur, those of us who couldn't follow it, so he went over. So he, he was a good ally of mine at that point in time. And he told me that when he first attended the Rav Shi'ur, when he first landed, he had a nervous stomach, he couldn't stand it, he was afraid that he would be called on. He went to Rabbi Salavetic at that point in time, he said to him, Rebbe, if you're ever going to call upon me, I can't, I can't be in the shiur. So promise me now that you will never call on me, then I'll stay in the shiur, otherwise I'm leaving. Right, so the Rabbi agreed. He promised never to call on Rabbi Aaron Khan. This is what Aaron Khan told me. Right? You could ask if you like. Okay, good. So I, of course, was very upset that I was in that shiur, I had no choice about it, but okay, you go, you walk in. The first day in the shiur, that Tuesday, I found out about the pole seat. What's the pole seat? There is a pole <laughs> in the middle of the shiur that everybody wants to sit behind, and everybody has a claim to it. Now, I was new, obviously, there were others before me who had the rights, in quotes, to the pole seat. What was so great about the pole seat? Well, the rug would call upon you to read or repeat the lesson by establishing eye contact. It was eye contact. If he established eye contact, he would call upon you. If he didn't establish eye contact, then he couldn't call upon you. So you'd look around the room, and if he made eye contact, you were it, on the hot seat, and if not, you didn't. So obviously, if he's behind the pole, he could establish eye contact with you, and therefore, all would be well. But, there was only one pole seat. Right? And so it was occupied by the guy who was there last year. So what did the rest of us do? The rest of us <laughs> were very wise. I quickly learned this lesson. If you're on the pole seat, you just have to avoid eye contact. So how do you avoid eye contact? Good, you look down. So all of us would look down. Simple enough. So now, the rub sees that everybody is now. Everybody please look down. Okay, do look down. So what would he do? What's he going to do? Go by the color of your shirt. Not exactly. Not yet. That comes in later. So what does he do? He goes by the attendance sheet. So we look at the, at the attendance sheet. Now there's, remember, 70, 80 people in the shoe at that time, all looking down. Nobody wants to be called upon. I'm a first year student. This guy the 10 years that I'll be called upon. He was very demanding, as you'll see in a minute. So now he goes to the attendance sheet, and here, this is about the second, third week that I was in the class, because he sees the name Tulushkin. Right? Some of you heard of the name Tulushkin? Joseph Tulushkin, who was my Havruta. So I knew what Tulushkin knew, and I know what Tulushkin didn't know. <laughs> now, so he recognized the name Tulushkin. Why? Because I was Tulushkin's grandfather, Joseph Tulushkin's grandfather, was a great rav, was a great rabbi. Right? One of the experts, if not the expert, on Mikvaot in America. So he sees the name, recognizes it, and he says to Joseph, are you late to Rabbi Tulushkin? Who's my grandfather, Rabbi? Grandfather. He says, yes, grandfather, great for sick. Okay, Tulushkin, read the Gemara. So Joseph says at that point in time, I prefer not. Now I knew why he preferred not. He was not prepared. Because I was his chabrutah, so I knew we didn't know. So I knew that. So I was sitting, like he was over there, I was over here, I was smirking a little bit. <laughs> He's in trouble. <laughs> I was not in trouble. Good. <laughs> so Rabbi Soledad's answer says, in my shi'ur, in my shi'ur, I do all the preferring. Read the Gemara. So he starts 
sweating. So he says, really, Rebbe, really, Rebbe, I can't. All right, the Rebbe says, and now he's going to call somebody else. All right, okay, call somebody else. So what happens next? All of our eyes go down, right? He's calling somebody else. Good. So, no eye contact. So now he says, you there with the blue shirt, read the Gemara. Right? So he's pointing this general direction of where I was sitting, and my eyes are down. So I turn around, I see a fine buckle, very buckle. He's there. Now he was wearing red pinstripes. <laughs> so I look at him, he's wearing red pinstripes. It's a true story, red pinstripes. Look at me, I'm wearing blue pinstripes. So blue pinstripes, not blue. But blue pinstripes are closer to blue than red pinstripes. Right? Okay. So I I was close to blue than him, so then I look up, says, Yeah, yeah, that's you, read the Gemara. So what am I going to do? So I start reading the Gemara. And Havara, Sfaradit. So the Rav says to me, You must have learned the Karen Bayavna, because there they do Hebrew and Hebrew. And I have a Sfaradi. We read the Gemara. So then he says, so I said to him, No, 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 I'm a Sfaradi. He says, I'll read the Gemara. True <laughs> <laughs> <Good> story. <laughs> now, the point of the story here would be that yes, the Rav was, was somebody who inspired fear and demanding, but also there was a warmth and a love, and he also inspired laughter as well. And ultimately, I would say to you, love. I tried to explain last week, how is it that somebody who is so private and so personal and so distant and so aloof, how do you come to love a person like this? That's part of, part of it. Next story. A few months passed by. The Rav asked a question. There's somebody now who is a teacher in Frisch, I believe. And I think it's in Frisch. I want to tell you who he is. And he attempted an answer. The Rav screamed out, literally, idiot, to this person. Stunned, heart stopped, all of us, and this, you're sitting right over there, right where you're sitting, starts laughing hysterically. He couldn't stop laughing. I'm seeing it right now, laughing hysterically, out of, obviously, embarrassment, out of uh, shock. What else do you say? So we had a right to be afraid. He demanded excellence. He demanded for you to know everything. It is true that he felt that if you were not prepared for the shi'ud, that you had a moral lapse, you didn't prepare properly, you didn't care enough about it, and therefore he would take you to task if you did not prepare properly. Norman Lamb used to call him the terror of the classroom or something. Uh, not surprisingly. Uh, I had him when he was much calmer much more mellow. And those years he was speaking in Yiddish still. I think it was more terrible in Yiddish than he was in, in English. I have a simple story just briefly. When I started, when he called on me to read, and I read and have an Asakadi. What year was that? That was in... Um, 1966. My tears are for me. Okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And I heard him ask Herschel. Justin, right. Who's that boy? Uh-huh. And Herschel said, he's a boy came from Ravana Shear in this last semester. So, Rob didn't tell me, okay, I'll read. But he bailed me out after, you know, about four or five minutes of reading and uh, saying what she says or whatever Tosafot says and without getting into any real give and take, and to go to the next one. <laughs> he's good. Right? He's compassionate. Very compassionate. Good, good point. Okay, now, five months passed by, and I was invited to the Rob's apartment at night to have a discussion. Four or five of us were invited to there. And we were allowed at that point to ask any question that we wanted to ask. Right? Dormitories. It was a dorm council time. So we came. We went there. 
one of the Abedon counts that said to the, to the Rav, I really don't think I should be in, in college at this point as an undergraduate, and it's because of my learning, what should I do? So the Rav said at that point, quote, I'm not a Hasidic Rebbe, ask me a question about halacha, I can, ask, I can answer you, you have to decide for yourself, I quote, don't believe in spiritual slavery, unquote. So here, this youngster, he was, you know, a kid, 19, 20, 21 years old, was saying, I need advice about what my spiritual direction should be. His answer is, you have to decide. You must create your own life. I can't tell you what to do about your own life. Now, you can raise the question, is that story significant? Does it mean anything? I think it does. I think that's very much the existential element of Rabbi Soloveitchik in that existentialism is really about creating who you are. In a classic formulation of what existentialism is all about, by contrast to what preceded existentialism, Greek philosophy said, Aristotle said, you have an essence, right? Who you are. You're essentially, you're a, you're a biped. You are a person who stands and thinks and walks. And your existence follows your essence. Your existence is an unfolding of who you are, essentially. Right? You can't be anything other than your essence. The essence of an oak tree is an acorn. The acorn will eventually develop into an oak tree. It just develops. Potential actualized. That's Aristotle's view of human being. Existentialism says exactly the opposite. Your existence, what you do in life, ultimately defines your essence. We don't know what your essence is right now. Ultimately, you create your own essence. It's not preceding you at birth. You have no essence at birth. Your essence ultimately is what your existence ultimately becomes. So, what he's saying the same thing. You become what you have to become. I can't tell you what to become. So in that sense, he didn't dictate or in any which way decide your personal issues. I'm in my second year of the Rav Shield now, feeling a bit more comfortable. I didn't ask ever the Rav any questions about anything that I didn't understand. I asked Rabbi Khan. He's a good friend. Mentioned to you. And he said to me a few times, you should ask the Rav. He likes you. I think he knew who I was. As Rav Khan said, he likes you. Ask the Rav. So at one point I became, as well of that, a little bit more bold. The Rav asked a question. The reason that the Gemara had made a certain formulation. I meekly raised my hand, which I never would have done earlier on. He called upon me, and I asked what I thought it was. He says, too philosophical. I was risking being called an idiot. You realize that. Pretty bold. He said, too philosophical. I felt good about getting it wrong. At least I wasn't. An idiot. So that was a step forward. It was good. A few months passed by, and he's discussing Masechus Hulin at this point in time, and there was a Tosafot, which is a commentary on the Gemara itself, and Tosafot raised a question on this piece of Gemara, right? From Masechus Abu Dazara. Good. Tosafot says, how does Gemara say this when something else is the case? Right? Now, when you read the Tosafot, you see that the question made no sense. Tosafot asked the question from, on this Gemara from Abu Dazara, but it made no sense. Why? Because that's talking about apples and talking about oranges. Two completely different items. So what kind of question are you asking? Right? So of course we could figure it out. Well, so that was able to find 
a conceptual basis that these two texts shared. And once I find a conceptual basis that these two really are the same conceptually, though they're apples and oranges, they're the same conceptually, they're both fruits. Right? So now he had a question. If they're both conceptually the same, I have a question, and that was just a thought. question, then it answered. So if this hour and a half discussion of what this all was all about, at the end of the shiur, Abba Salavechik said, for this I deserve a medal. Quote, unquote. Right? This I deserve a medal. So I thought that was cute, humorous, and a bit strange. Very rarely does a person with that kind of image say, I deserve a medal. Okay. Two days passed by. Now it's Thursday. He asked me to review the shiur. So I did. So I went through the whole entire verse of thought, the chulin, the question that was asked, and what the Rav had explained as to what the question was all about. At the end of the, shiur, at the end of the I said, and, for, and the Rav said at the end of the shiur, for this I deserve a medal. So I want him to be aware that I was aware that for this he said I deserve a medal. So certainly, he was aware of his intellectual gifts, of his brilliance, yet it was unassuming and unpretentious. Did he respond to it? He left. He left. He left. Now that's good. Good enough. Last two stories. First, it's about the conspectus. Now, what is the conspectus? Conspectus is a summary of something. It's a summary of an, of an article, whatever it may be. Rabbi Salvechik, of course, at that point in time, going back to, I think it was 1971, no, it was 1973, there were very few published writings that anybody was reading. And people, of course, are thirsting for his work. So, I was approached by Joey Epstein, who was a medical student at the time, but he wasn't a Rabbi Salvechik Shi'ur, which becomes relevant later on. And he asked me, do I want to be an editor of this little book called The Conspectus? What's The Conspectus? I asked him, he said, well, it's a summary of some of the Shi'urim Rabbi Salvechik has given. It's a nice summary. I said, okay, I'll do it. But second year Roshir, but comfortable, I would do it. We the students wrote and published a summary of about ten of his public shooting. In September he said, Yes, it's no problem, but said, Show me the galleys. Said to the editor, Joseph Esten, show me the galleys. Good. So that's this month we spent gathering, writing the summaries of all these shooting. It was a great work, we thought. There was nothing published at that time. Rosenstein wrote something about it as well. Time came to publish. Now it's March or April. Don't get to publish. Now the question was, should we show it to the Rav? Rosenstein said, Joey Epstein said, Rosenstein said, if you show it, he'll never give it back. He, has, he wants to be perfect. It was not perfect. He wants to be back. He wants to be perfect. So he won't give it back to you. So at the end, Joel Lewoski was an editor, and Joey Epstein was an editor. They decided to publish it. 5,000 copies were published. It was sold out in four to five weeks. We got calls from all over the world. Literally, we want a copy of the Conspectus. Right? I gave the one I had to Emily as an engagement gift. But I took it back until we got married. So it's in my possession right now. But it has what I wrote to her. Dear Emily, love, this and that, marry me. Now it's mine. So now, it's published, 5,000 are sold out. The Rob's furious. He is enraged, I was told, that we published this. And you might agree with him and say, rightfully so. Now, of the... Did you know it was going to be published? No, you know, we didn't tell him. He didn't know if something was being written. Yes or no? We said yes. Oh, okay. He agreed that it was done. But did he also think you were keeping it at a very smaller, like, publishing? I don't know what he thought. All I know is that in September he said, yes, it's okay. We're going to publish it. And we didn't show it to him. It was a really... We thought, it's a little tiny booklet. It's 100 pages. It's a very nice booklet. It's really... It's our reconstruction of his shooting. 
Now you might say he might have wanted something to be more precise, whatever it was, but we knew if we gave it to him, and Rabbi Linda said, he knows he won't get it back. So we published it. So it was in range. So you guys could have been expelled or something. I think we weren't worried about that. <laughs> so of the four editors of, um, I think it was Joseph Epstein, you know, it's Carmi. It's on your family record, by the way. It probably is. <laughs> well, you hear the story. So uh, Carmi, Sean Carmi, Epstein, Joel Lewalski, and myself. I think we were the four of the four editors. I was the only one in the shoot at the time. So he was angry at me. So his guy, guy named Mark Karasik says the rub is furious at you and he wants to speak to you after the shi'ur me <laughs> you can't imagine fear fear absolute fear petrified and I said do I have to go alone I mean he's the frail old man sorry I don't know what that or a shotgun or something what am I going to do I was petrified before going to his, into um, before going to the shiur. Now, shiur's two and a half hours. It's over. Mark walks me to the door. Now I'm going in alone, numb with fear. Right? Right? So he began by saying, how dare you take this and publish it without showing me the galleys? He said to me, I... Hold on. I didn't know the time. Hold on. I want to publish some of the articles myself. I want to make it uh, more perfect. How dare you do this? Then it's quiet. The silence. Right? So now I said with what I consider to be a stroke of brilliance at that time. Brilliance. I said, first of all, Rebbe, I apologize, but I don't know what galleys are either. I said, I don't know what galleys are. I was not part of the galley publishing thing. I don't know what it was. A galley, you know, galley slave ship, a galley, I don't know what galleys were. So I had no idea what galleys were. It wasn't up to me. I had nothing to do with the galleys. I just wrote, read and wrote some of the articles. With the articles, so I did. Number one. For, second of all, Ravi, I said, there's a great need for the rough sword to be published. I, we sold about 5,000 copies in three or four weeks. Where are we going to find this understanding of Torah, of Judaism, a tradition magazine, a Judaism magazine? Is that what you want us to read? doesn't work. And third of all, I said, I'm doing Teshuvah if I wrongly rub in any which way. But unlike, I said to him, Teshuvah of Elisha ben Abuyah, the way the rub explains it. So how does the rub explain Teshuvah ben Abuyah? Who's Elisha ben Abuyah? So I said, we all, we all know this story, that in Masechah HaGigah tells us about Elisha ben Abuyah was one of the four that went to that world of Pades, that philosophical world, and he was the one who became a heretic. Acher, right? He became a heretic. So we have a, a narrative in I think it was like a Shabbat, where Rabbi Mi'ed was a student of his. And they were walking and learning and studying together. And Shabbat Abuya, it's a very poignant moment, tells Shabbat Abuya, tells Rabbi Mi'ed, Hazor Becha. Which he means, go, you, you've only allowed to walk 2,000 amot outside of the city gates. On Shabbat, you can't walk in a desert or wilderness. Only have 2,000 amot, and then you have to go back. So Shabbat Abuya, who's riding his donkey in violation of Shabbat, he's riding, he's walking, and he's telling him, Hazor Becha, so go back, Hazor Becha, go back. So Rabbi Meir says to him, Hazor Becha, meaning, do Teshuvah. So Shabbat Abuya says, Kach Shabbat Bifniya Pargod, I heard on the other side of the curtain that separates this world from the next world, on Pasuk and Hoshea, Shuvonim Shuvim, return, O you wayward sons, Chutz Me'aher. That's the Gemara. That he was the one, he said, I heard that everybody could do Teshuvah except for Ahir. I was too far gone, I can't do it. But so I interpreted that statement as saying that he lied. It was self-deception. 
that everybody can always at any point in time do teshuvah, but a person can become ultimately deceiving of oneself where you think that you cannot because you really don't want to. So explain it. So I explained to Rabbi Salvechik that I am doing teshuvah unlike teshuvah but I really do feel terribly upset and that I did something wrong to the, to the Rav and therefore my teshuvah is sincere unlike Elishah ben So what did he do with the Rav? He chuckled. He laughed. Said, okay, go back to Shia. So it was a very nice ending to that story. Seven years pass. I'm in a, in a PhD program in Boston. I walked the, the Rav home a few times. It was a very nice conversation. I drove him home at my Mondays a few times. All that happened. Okay, which is very nice. Used to go to a Shurim on Saturday nights. Very nice. That were co-educational. You had men, women, all came. I was invited to come the seventh year to Congregation Maggie and David. I seriously considered it. Considered it. Wasn't sure if I really wanted to come. I wanted to be an academic, academician. Alright, I received a phone call. And uh, I guess it was maybe March of that year. Like 8, 1982. And it was from a, a head rabbi in Deal. And this rabbi in Deal had said to me, we don't want you to come. Well, the rabbis in Deal voted, and we don't want you to come to Deal. And he had said to me at that point in time, we heard you're a student of Rabbi Shama. I said, I don't know who Rabbi Shama is. I was out of the community for about 15 years. I'd gone seven years to YU, seven years to Boston. I know who Rabbi Shama was. I was talking about. Well, anyway, we voted we shouldn't come. <laughs> so we were really, Emily and I were really upset. What we, we had this wonderful experience in Boston. It was a great place to be. What am I going back to this community for? That was the question. So I decided in June of 82 to go and speak to Rabbi Salabashik about it. Right? So I decided, I first called him up on a, um, it was a Thursday. I was nervous. I spoke to his daughter Atara, who was with his daughter Atara at the time. I'd like to visit the Rabbi, I have a very important decision to make. What should I, could I come by? She says, yes, come in on Sunday at 5.30. I was there. 529 I came and I will tell you that I spent 40 minutes of the most wonderful conversation he was relaxed he was kidding he was he was um, youthful almost one might say he said to me ask any of your questions so I began with that question should I go to deal or not he said that I should go but I should call him all the time with any questions that I had he said that he was very surprised I never thought I would see such extremism in the Jewish world. I described it in a certain community, general, the general extremism in 82. I never thought I would see such a thing. It was a very palpable feeling of warmth, just being with him for those 40 minutes. I asked him other questions as well. I asked him about the four biblical modes of punishment and their ancient Near Eastern context. I asked him whether that she had Ruach HaKodesh. All the questions that I had, which I didn't go there to ask these questions, but I was there, so I decided to, to ask. I walked out with a glow. It was a wonderful experience. And I will tell you as well that what this, I guess, um, translated itself into is that it was very important to me that he would meet my wife when I got engaged and, and suddenly married. And what he said about that, by the way, it was very interesting. He had said that um, Emily happens to be the granddaughter of the Bayana Rebbe, which is not in, in point of itself. So I told him who she was and that. He said to me, the Bayana Rebbe, I knew him in 1947. They went to an Agadah convention in Chicago. They traveled all night by train. And he said to me, it was one of the most pleasant nights he ever spent with the Bayana Rebbe, in learning and discussing whatever it was all about. 
that when my first child was born in, uh, in Boston, it was important to me that he gets to know my child. Now, you have to explain, understand why is that? You, know, you call your parents to have a child. Why do you do that? To me, there was such a, um, a feeling, which was one way, I imagine to be, of me towards him, that there was such an emotional connection that it was important for me that he gets to know my children. So even when we went back to visit on subsequent years, we always wanted to bring my kids, you know, to, just to see him, to know him, to understand him. They get upset, although they were three, four, five years old. I wanted to um, almost not ask him for a beracha. Why? He doesn't give berachot. Right, exactly. He doesn't give berachot. But you want to take something of him along to my children. To give them what I had was very important to me. Which, of course, cannot be done. It can't happen. I was very fortunate. I was very lucky. Everything fell into place at the right time. It was just an extraordinary experience. But I couldn't give it to my kids, sadly. One concluding remark. Not for me. I was teaching at uh, Maimonides for seven years while I was in Boston. And this is a, a uh, story that Rabbi Rubenstein tells. Rabbi Rubenstein was teaching there about two years before I got there, three years before I got there. And of course, when you're teaching Maimonides, you are petrified that the rub would walk in to see how you're teaching. He was what? Principal? He was, no, he was the founder of the school. If you look at the billboard outside, he's the founder. So he took a very active interest, he and his wife, who was a PhD in education, took a very active interest in the school itself. To the extent where he demanded that we teach Gemara to the girls, as to the boys, in the same classroom. I taught boys and girls together, Masechet Chulim, Masechet Shabbat. Because he demanded, you should not give an inferior education to the women as opposed to the boys. And he was afraid that if we separate the classes, then the boys get a, they get a better Talmud teacher rather than the girls. Separate. Right, so we, he wanted, in the same classroom, I taught Caroline Pizer. Who's Caroline Pizer? A.B. Uh, Sutton's, Alava Shalom's niece. Right. So she was in that classroom. Right? Sammy's cousin. Right? So she was there with all the other kids, all there. In any case, teaching, so, but if the rug walked in, he came in, say, so he came back from New York on Thursday, he'd come in on Friday, typically, if he taught on Friday, and he'd, he'd walk in, Scary. It's very scary. Because what are you going to say? So of course, every person taught Talmud knew that if the rub is on the on the hallway, as you know, coming in, then all of a sudden you he's about to come in. Okay, try to do Havrutah now. They each study each of the other. So you're not teaching, right? So that's what everybody did. So you have to be sympathetic to those teachers who did that. I never did that. I teach on Fridays, so I know the problem. But other girls did. So. Right, Ruben tells the story where the rabbi is walking in, okay, goes in, tells everybody else, okay, habutah, type everybody's habutah. So one student has a question, asks the habutah, doesn't know, goes to Rabbi Rubenstein. Rabbi Rubenstein, here's the question, that's what are you asking me for? Here's the master, time would ask the rabbi the question that you have. So, the student is sitting down, the rabbi puts up a chair, then they discuss this question. Sorry? How old is this student? Ninth grade or tenth grade. Which says something about him. Ninth grade, tenth grade, so the student is uh, talk, discussing the issue, etc. So finally, after ten minutes, the rabbi says that the student's a very good question, the same question which I thought asked him about the Talmud, and here's the answer to it. So for this, it's very nice. And what Ruzi says at the end, he says, I'm sure she'll never be the same. The point is that this was a girl, not a boy. The rabbi took them equally the same. Similarly, another narrative that um, 
it's um, I forget his name um, I don't know his name come to me tells that in the early years of Maimonides the road would go around on Fridays and a little boy was asked to leave the room he was naughty so he writes the Rav's walking the hallways he asks the little boy he says to him what happened he says uh, I was naughty this is about um, he was eight years old second grade eight years old he was naughty asked to leave the room Rav says well did you do something bad yeah yeah did you do true before yes 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 okay so then go back into the room it's okay so he says, no, no, I can't go, I can't go, I'm afraid to go back. Why are you afraid to go back? He says, well, I was out for about 20 minutes, and we were learning Chumash, and uh, I don't know, and the teacher this question on Chumash. So he says, well, how about if I teach you the Chumash, then you can go back to school. He says, you know Chumash? <laughs> <laughs> so you know Chumash? He says, okay, bye. They go to Chumash, he goes back into the story. So that is really reflective of who he was as a person. And there are many, many other narratives that you find throughout, I guess, people who remember issues, and it conveys and communicates a sense, a little bit, of who he was. He's not only this kind of disembodied intellect, or he's very much that intellectual personality, but he's also very much a real person. He's a warm person, a loving person, a caring person. There's so many facets to him. What I try to capture over here are some of these narratives that I was very fortunate to have. Are there any questions, by the way? Yeah, please. Why didn't he answer the student when he asked him about whether he should go to college or continue his learning in the beginning of the Right, about, right. Why, because you, so why did he answer you about going to deal? I think every situation demands a different answer. He, that student, did not really, really care about the answer, I think. He was groping, but he... He had to. He, he had. He's going to do without the rabbi. Either that, yeah. or he couldn't hear the answer, or just wasn't. He didn't have the connection. The rabbi gave the center of the of the rope salvation. Also gave guidance to yeah. risking when he had the uh, Lincoln Square synagogue issue. Yeah, many cases. So he would. He didn't refuse to discuss anything. Right, right. Yeah. I just. I think the situation. Each situation was different, but he would help people to guide them on what they wanted to do with their lives. But not as a rabbi. Not as a rabbi. I think not as a. Um, as a person that, the, that you have to follow what I'm saying. In many ways, he just wanted you to decide for yourself. He knew that I was going to deal. He knew that I, was, I wasn't going to stay in Boston. You know, whatever I thought I was going to do, he knew what I was really going to do. That's how he said that you should call him. Yeah, all the time. He said, call me no, like anytime. Call me like right, call me and any questions you have, any shadows you have, quote unquote, call me, which I never did. Never did, but, uh, sorry? Did you feel guilty, I mean, uncomfortable about calling him and bothering yeah absolutely yeah yeah who am I to call I call up Schechter all the time I call him today as a matter of fact it's just pathetically it's almost like he was saying to you like call me because I'll let if it gets hard for you I'm there for right you, and I'll help you get absolutely no I think absolutely there was a warmth there was a there was a feeling absolutely correct there was a warmth I felt wonderful about it it gave me the confidence to go actually so you're right it gave me the confidence to go and whatever's going to be he there yeah but he it, taught you what you're going to need to know. Like what you, he thought that he had confidence in you. That you were I don't know if he had confidence in me. <laughs> I don't know if that was it. I, I don't know. I, I can't explain why. I think he may be... Well, you were much more mature than he had when he was other college. Yeah, it was 10 years later. So it was 12, 15 years. I was 32. You had pretty clearly made your choice of what your life was going to be. Now it's just a question of... How do I do it? The deal stay exhausted, but the, the road that you charted for yourself was pretty much determined as it was Rabbi Riskin is going to be a yeah. pulpit rabbi to, so 
perhaps that you felt like you've, you've, you've already defined yourself. Yeah, so now you decide. A 20 year old kid maybe figured. Still in the class of, of defining. Nothing I say is going to change what he really wants to be of himself. Ultimately. It's your own internal motivation. If you don't have it, my phone, you do this or do that. It's not going to work, yeah. Sorry? But it's almost like he knew that what you were going to endure was going to be a challenge. And that you'd be up to the challenge. I'm not saying that. I don't. I'm not going to go that far. No. I don't know if he thought anything like that. I, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, why was the Rav not accustomed with all of this discussion? Like, um, I guess I'm. As a, it's hard for me to hear that this. He was. He was a Kaftan. And she would. He wasn't. He obviously he taught, and people learned tremendous things from him. And he was able. He, to he was say, a power. You know, he was overwhelmingly. I mean, had his son, and his son was scary. Meaning, his son was scary. Correct. Right. Close the books and walked out, and those books right. were there, and we were just staring at each other. Kaptan is somebody who's strict, disciplinarian. You, you're there for the lesson, and you learn it, and you study it. And if you're not there, you're history. That's a Kaptan. But says, it should not be that way. Right. It should not be that way pedagogically. So my question is, I mean, this is what I'm hearing, and then I, and again, at the same time, we know of many stories where I know he um, dismissed the Shi'ur early to not reveal that one of the students needed to leave for treatment if he was yeah. ill. Absolutely. So to save mm-hmm. that student his embarrassment or whatever it is, or reveal his Oh, no. Private, uh, so he, you know, the sensitivity is there. A lot of kids, I'm sure. Absolutely. I'm overwhelmed. It's just, I'm hearing that everybody was scared to death. Scared. And I guess, especially when it comes to embarrassing students, I mean, I guess I'm just, I don't know. Capture the person. It, it, not everybody's always sensitive at every moment. The, the Gemara, the shoe is a battlefield. You have to be ready to prepare to do battle. Is as applicable in the collegiate environment when, when <coughs> Hazal said that a captain should not be a teacher. I think they were meaning in the context of a postgraduate uh, situation as opposed to a child, a young, impressionable child who's going to be okay. on the door. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think captain actually works at the higher level. Do you think, think he did it? Do you think it, it certainly inspires fear? No, I think I think it inspires respect for the material. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the person to take seriously. But was this pedagogically motivated, or was his personality such that that I'm going to hit them with both barrels? His wife is a PhD in education. Like, right. I wonder what kind of discussion. Well, that's two different people. I mean, uh, two different people. I don't know. What the, I don't know. That's two people. I don't know. But again, do you think? I mean, I, my sense of that statement was more a reflection not of his pedagogic technique, although he was a great pedagogue. I think in the shi'ur he was transformed to an, into a, a powerhouse, into a dynamo, into a demanding authoritarian person. And I think that, you know, if you ask, you know, Rabbi Riskin, who sat with them for two, three years also, and, and Rabbi Bourbon, all these people, although they did it earlier, you know, and they were in the late 50s, they did it when it was near there, so I think it was different. I think it was just a, he was, I'll tell you the truth, that I, um, I do say things, inappropriate things in classes. I'm sure everybody who's been here can remember, David, can remember, things where I get out of line. Never see, no. No, but I do, and I really do, and I have to. And Emily goes crazy. She's very upset about it. And why are you saying that? Why don't you, you know? Had you had you insult that person? 
I don't intend to insult people, but you get carried away by you know your feeling for the material that you're you're passionate about your education. This is holy stuff, and therefore you do in fact. You're not always a good pedagogue. You do in fact throw your heart and soul into it, and therefore if somebody says something that's inappropriate, you do. Did you have uh, doc, uh, Did you have Doctor Wallach in class? Yeah, I did. Oh my God. So. I mean, he's the guy who inspired similar feelings. Not fear. You, oh, yes. Well, I had him, he was pretty old. I had him, he couldn't, he couldn't even run on the board. I had him. Only your mother loves you. Only your mother will love you. Dubrov, to me, you're a mental P. What did you say? Dubrov was big. You know, you look like a condition twice as chronic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had a very sharp tongue, but you know what? Very sharp. He was yeah. a very good teacher and, yeah. and really he was in love with his subject yeah, yeah. somehow it communicated to me anyway I was uh, what, 14 but it communicated to me yeah, was, yeah. that this is a guy you know doesn't mean doesn't mean anything really bad by it I think he's yeah. agreed okay, I agree I mean but but, I mean, but, when you're 20, but, but if he wasn't a good teacher you would be Sending him to the to the gallows, you know. For, right. That's all he was. Mm-hmm. So, but because he was a good teacher, you were willing to overlook his insensitivity. No, not, well, no you see, the, the, it wasn't really insensitive. It wasn't really insensitivity. That's what I'm trying to say. I think the message got across. But he wasn't really trying to be insensitive. He was funny. He was, he was cute. Trying, he's trying to be engaging. He, he he wanted to poke some fun at people. He wanted he wanted to keep it sometimes a little light, you know. I think I I, I hear what you're saying. Of course, I, I would say someone idiot. It's different than broken fun according to the finish. <laughs> I, I do think, I think that the, in all the shooting that I was yeah, at... Yeah, it's a bit yeah. well, the rough responded to something you said with such a feeling. That's, that's okay, so I would say, I would say it's the only time I've ever heard him in that way in all the seven, eight years, nine years that I was, nine years that, that I had studied with him off and on in different contexts. So on the one hand, it might have been out of character. On the other hand, I do see that his shi'ur, he does say things that he's intense about learning. I've had occasion to, yeah. had occasion to hear his son, Chaim, yes. give a lecture. Yes. And he's uh, tough, he's he tough. sometimes would be edgy. Yes. And I wonder if that's a reflection of his father. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I think Chaim is Chaim. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's a reflection of his father. I think it's, it's, it's an impatience with people that are of lesser minds than they, to some degree. Others who go, so that's necessary, but Chaim is that way. I mean, he just, he can't see you not fully there. It's, you know, how seriously you take your subject matter. He takes it very seriously, as Rav Sakis says, subject matter. Yeah, sorry. On the display board outside, it says that the, the rabbi was in Israel only once. Right, 35. And how come he didn't go more often? Some say the reason is because there's a halakha that if you want to enter Israel, you cannot ever leave, unless you have threefold reason for it. To get married, to study Torah, whatever it may be. Um, I don't know if that's really the reason or not. People do explain it that way. Um, why would he never go? It's an interesting question. If not for a halakhic reason. Was he not curious about it? Certainly, post-72, he had children and grandchildren there. Whatever the thing went to Israel. Um, on the other hand, it's supposed to be he was 71, 69, 70, 72 years old. Maybe he wasn't that easy, and he wasn't in great health either. So, you know, and plus maybe after his wife passed away in 67, he just had no heshek, no yearning to go. Yeah, at that point in time, I mean, he was very close to his wife in ways a week. You know, what do we say about it? And yeah. 
and that year that his father uh, that his brother. his brother his wife and one other person his um, mother. mother passed away his mother passed away in uh, when I was in Boston right in the 80s in 879 79 I was in Boston so I was at the shooting so um, just it's devastating the emotional impact was devastating you know and, and uh, I was at YU in 67 so I, we know when it was we didn't come give shiur, and she was in the fog. She couldn't give shiur because that was just one after another. Nineteen thirty-five, you said, right? Yeah. But if the state was established in forty-eight, the question is no, no. The question is why should he go? What is the state really all about? On the other hand, Rabbi Kevin has this great series of tapes which tells you, which Rabbi Harai spoke about last week, as a Zionist, he was broke from his family tradition, broke from the right wing, and they were all wrong, and he was right, they were all wrong. They didn't get what the state's all about. We're not going to speak about it, obviously, tonight, but he, in so many ways, was so way ahead of the, of the right wing or of any wing. He just was, he called the shots properly. One should be a religious Zionist. One should do, in all these areas. Ecumenism, in all the areas that he, that he really led the charge, he was really proven to be, I think, really accurate with his warnings as well as with his with his engagement so I just think I just I think you know wanting to go to Italy it wasn't his cup of tea why you know at that point in time what was Israel in 48, 49, 52, 55, 60 why go what should I go just curiosity he's not curious about things I, about those kinds of things might have been the disappointment from his uh, 1935 you know uh, being the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, that might have been a, a disappointment. That, uh, yeah, but would that affect him 30 years later? I don't know if that would have, what it was all about. So it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, there are many giggling who go who don't live there. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, you know, maybe visit. I don't know if he ever went there. Rabbi Shavari never went. There. Never went as well. Correct. So who knows? I mean, it's um, it's a good question. I don't know. About his wife when she was being buried. For what reason? Uh, yeah. well, they were the, I heard reports when they were lowering the coffin of his wife into the grave. Yeah. He broke out. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it was a. And she was young. She was in the early 60s. He was 67. She was, I think, 63. Mm-hmm. 62, 60. So she was very young. He describes very movingly it's, um, in one of his essays what it was like to go through that and when he would pray, it should be well. It, it was a terrible period of time. In his essay on catharsis in tradition, he writes what it was like being in the hospital and, and he could not be able to pray in the hospital, he went home. And what he's saying, you know, it's, it's almost his intense belief in God that this is not right to happen. It was a shattering of a world. You know, it's a shattering of a world. I wrote also, I forget where, but the, the, when he, they gave him Pitya Hatta Echal on uh, Yom Kippur night. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And uh, when he's standing there, he's praying for his wife, the assistant to that slid down. Yeah. From you know the Ashkenazi sefer to that, right. slid down, right. and, yeah, and he said that. He said that at that moment, he knew she could die. She wasn't going to He said just intuitively, he knew yeah. that was the sign that uh, she was going to die. Yeah, it's very difficult. But yeah. it could also be uh, interpreted as a superstition. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, again, I, I tend to you know question all these issues. I don't know. Unless he wrote it or... He wrote it, he wrote it. He wrote it either in... Either in uh, where was it? Where did he write it? Yeah, I don't recall seeing it, so I don't, I don't know if you, if you heard it. or I don't recall reading it. I'll go no, check I again the articles. I, I recall reading, reading it. it. I'm trying to remember where. where? Uh, oh, maybe it was on one of his tapes. One of his Could shows. be the tapes. Could be the one on Da'alot Echa. 
I did hear that. I don't remember that particular you know, phrase of it. He said. I don't remember. So again, whatever it may be, yeah, however one views it, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry? Um, being the fact that he was from European descent and studied in Berlin and everything, wasn't the um, people that come from there, like, wasn't that part of their, the way he was, like, part of their personality or their upbringing or their very strict and, I don't know, have a certain way about their education and their very, did that have anything to do with the way he was, just his upbringing and... Yeah, I, I don't know the whole risk, risk, regimentation. Yeah. Again, when you hear the CD, if you get to it, I have it in deal. I have it in my car actually. So, but when you get it, deal whatever, it's worth listening to. It gives us what it was about. He'll tell you on the tape that he says, or such so as that people think that I, that the brisk are very cold and not emotional, etc. But it's not true. He says that even when I left Warsaw to go to Berlin and was probably or likely never to see my father again he said to me the same words Hashem should be with you you know and, and be well and, and he didn't kiss him he never kissed yeah, him they never kissed they never kissed he shook my hand and that was it but there was a great deal of warmth and feeling between us there was love between us but it wasn't expressed and the analogy is that that which is most precious to you should be most reserved like the Holy of Holies Holy of Holies nobody goes in nobody sees it, it it's hidden so love to your child should be hidden and not expressive about it. So it's a good insight to who he was. So I think who he was is a combination of a lot of different factors and variables. His personality, his home, his parents, where he grew up. All of that's part of it. You know, part of who he was. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? Yeah? Did he have a small career as a pulpit rabbi? He always was a pulpit rabbi. He always was a pulpit rabbi. He was a rabbi of the Maimonides School, which was a small minyan in Boston, which he founded, I guess, in the late 40s, even earlier, but probably um, even earlier. He came to Boston as a pulpit rabbi, actually, as a chief rabbi of Boston, in the early 30s. So from then on, he was always the rabbi in the synagogue, but he wasn't the same functioning kind of rabbi. He did all the ceremonies, but he, he was mainly in New York, so maybe in the 30s, 40s, he 50s. wasn't really counseling the congregants. Those who were close to him, those who needed counseling, he did. I would say he did, but it's not, it wasn't the same type of community that we have today the small synagogue if you lived in that area you went to that synagogue Israel, the Muslim Rebbe wherever it was so he was the pulpit rabbi I mean he spoke and he gave classes I'm asking towards that end like did he counsel the con- you know did he have opportunity to counsel the congregation I think so and what, what do you know any stories of uh, individuals that they had you know, interactions yeah a lot of people have them I mean that you know some friends some not friends yeah a lot of people spoke to him he was much more real and much calmer and much more comfortable in Boston than he was in New York. In Boston he was at home. Why did he go to Boston? He was invited to be the chief rabbi. He was in Germany in 1931. And they brought him in to be the chief rabbi of Boston at that point. And then, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Thank you very much. If you have any other questions, let me know. Thank you.